0: The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a coach here at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career.
1: In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people.
0: And occasionally it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference.
1: Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you.
0: So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin.
1: Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. So this week we're hearing from Super Bowl winning coach Bill Cower. He says that athletes want three things. Listen for what those three things are. He also shares his personal lessons about creating accountability. And listen for how he solicits the input of everyone in the organization who might have an idea on how to improve things. And after we hear from Bill Cowher, I'll quickly recap what we learned. Then there's something else I want you to listen to. It's an interview with Carly Fiorini, brilliant woman. She was the CEO of Hewlett Packard. She also ran for president back in 2016. And I'm telling you, she's really sharp. And she talks about something Bill Cowher talked about, collaboration. She gives us the finer points on how to do collaboration properly and why you need, in your heart, to embrace it. And here's the essence of what you'll learn this week. Seeking the wisdom of others can make you even greater. It takes your wisdom to the next level. So let's get started and listen to the wisdom of Bill Cowher. Remember, hey, as a head coach here at the University of Texas,
2: And now here's your host, Richard Ryerson.
3: Hey if you're a fan of professional football you'll recognize today's guest Bill Cower. He was the head football coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers for 15 years. He took him to the Super Bowl twice. He lost in 1995 against the Cowboys, but he won Super Bowl 40 against the Seahawks. He's a two- times AFC champion. He's the AP NFL coach of the Year in 1992. He's the two-time Sporting News NFL coach of the year. And he's been inducted in the Pittsburgh Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2011. He's got a win-loss record of a 161-99-1, and which is about a 61-62 percentage rating. Former Steelers head coach Bill Cowher on dose of leadership. When you went to your first Super Bowl, you know you're 38 years old, and then you're back again 10 years later and you're 48. What's the difference? How did you mature and grow? If you can look back in perspective, what um, what were the leadership lessons you learned within that kind of 10-year gap?
4: Well, the first thing I learned is it's not so easy to get back. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You know, so it's ten years later. I "It's like uh, I remember the mantra uh, that we kind of had that week was they never remember who loses a Super Bowl.'
2: You right? Know, I, I mean, right.
4: you always when you get there, you always remember the winners because they're they go down in history. But you, you really very rarely, outside of the Buffalo Bills, who went there four straight years. Uh, no one really remembers who loses that game. <laughs> right, so right. I, I I think the biggest thing you go back here is is, is, you, is you, you get a chance to go back there is it's a big stage. It's a great stage. It's a, you want to embrace it, but at the same time, you've got to stay focused on how you got there, not to the lose sight of that. You know, I think for me personally, it was just uh, it was all about the journey. Um, it, that was just one game. Yeah. You know, and I think I think when you look at a season, when you end up playing nineteen, twenty games. And, uh, you know, I know you maybe get defined by the one game, but I think through the course of that what you realize is the journey you took was very special and there's so many storylines along the way and things that you will always remember, not just the final game, but, uh, you know, all the challenges that you go through, all the sweat and tear and, and that, that you go through during the course of the preseason and the regular season and, you know, some of the big games that, that, that kind of create – the chemistry and actually create who you are from an identity standpoint. So um, it, it's a journey um, that a lot of times gets identified by one game, but when it's all said and done, um, it, it really becomes a very special year.
3: Yeah, for sure. You know, you've had a lot of, um, well, playing sports in general, you get so many life and leadership lessons, but I mean, you were under Lou Holtz. I just can't imagine. I, how much of your leadership um, style, your journey was impacted by working under Lou Holtz?
4: Well, I mean, I I think what you do, I think, is I was I was blessed to have a lot of good coaches along the way. Um, you know, obviously I had my high school coach, Bill Yost. I like, went to college, Lou Holtz. I had him for one year. Uh, you know, and then I had Bill Ryan for three years, and then I went to the pros, and I it was one year under Dick Vermeil. I got cut, and I had Sam Ritignano, Marty Schottenheimer. Um, so I was really very blessed to have had a lot of really good people in my life from a coaching perspective. And, you know, so they, you know, they, 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 they teach you a work ethic. They teach you a, a mental approach to the game, uh, an and of the game. Like it's all about preparation. It's all about what you, you know, you got to put more in to get something out. And, um, I think every one of them really impacted me a lot at the same time, you know, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, my father had a lot of, a lot of sure. impact on me. So. Yeah. You know, I think you become a, I think a byproduct of all the people you run across, in, in terms of, you know, your path as you as you go forward, whether it's in business or in sports.
3: How do you want to be remembered as a as a leader and a coach?
4: Oh, I don't. It doesn't. You know, my, I, the one thing anyone that, that was around me was I was I was consistent. Um, I held people accountable, and I and I and I embraced the journey. You know, I, I just I just I was a guy that I enjoyed every game. I enjoyed every every year love the challenges uh, the coming off of a loss love the challenges of trying to keep something uh, keep something sustainable and and um, you know and just that we would be a, we were always going to be a tough football team and I, I I helped people like I said I pushed people hopefully I made mm-hmm. them better people better players and it was all about preparation and again it was about winning with humility and having great respect for the game
3: yeah i i certainly that's uh, always admired that of you. Again, it was that humility piece. And I looked at it in all the coaches, I guess. But that intensity of will, coupled with a tremendous amount of humility, I think is an unstoppable combination. And um, I'm curious, behind the scenes, a little inside baseball, I know we're talking football, but, but inside baseball for the term of when you had expectations for your staff, for your coaching staff, how did, you, how did you run things? Were you a big delegator? Did everything have to run through you? What was it like? What were your expectations of your staff?
4: Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing was that you set expectations. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing you can do is make sure that you communicate and know what each each person has to understand, what is expected from them from a rule standpoint, what their role is, uh, you know, what what their their responsibilities are. Uh, certainly, delegation is uh, something you have to be able to good being good at if you want to, uh, you know, when you have a lot of people working for you. So. You are only going to be as good as the people you surround yourself with, that is for sure. But you still want to be involved with things. And, again, enough from the standpoint where you can hold people accountable. And I think, again, that's the biggest thing to me is, you know, I, I try to hold people accountable. I, I try to, you know, make sure that I encourage innovation. Um, and I want people to be innovative and think outside the box and make sure that there was a forum there that allowed them to share their ideas. Because I always thought that that's how we would be able to stay a step ahead is the you know, kind of think outside the box and mm-hmm. stay you know, understanding what the current trends are. But I mean, at the same time, then make some tough decisions. You know, you have to base it on production and accountability. And I tried to do that, not just with the staff, but also with the teams and, the, and what we're trying to build there. So that was kind of the traits that we tried, the culture we tried to have there. But again, it was, you know, it was all about preparation. It was about making sure you understand exactly what your role was. That was my job to make sure that I explained that and and then, then at the same time, that, that job also allowed that person to feel like they could be innovative, they can be uh, creative, and not to not to be able to harness them, but create an environment where people felt like the, that they were, you know, they were buying in, and that uh, they, they were taking ownership of the of the whole thing, and everybody from whatever, whatever level they were at, uh, they took ownership in the team. Well,
3: what do you think is your most memorable? If you could look back, I mean, there's so many things. Like one memory that just stands out above above all that you just like to revisit.
4: Uh, I don't know if it's uh, you know certainly the you know certainly winning winning the Super Bowl when you're involved in football all your life like I've been you know you get there and you lose one you know to get there and win one in my 14th year which was very late in my career it it uh, it took on it, it took on a lot of you know. Um, I, I really cherish that because I realized how hard it was. I think really? you don't realize how hard it is to win one uh, until you get involved with it and you stay in it long enough and you see all the different disappointments that come along the way. So certainly that was a very gratifying moment for me just because of all the uh, efforts and sacrifices, not just for me, but my family had made for me to be able to do what I did and Again, it's a gratification of winning one. Um, certainly, uh, you know, makes that journey that you take talking about uh, uh, very, uh, very fulfilling. So um, that that that's probably the biggest thing I take away from, and just, they feel very blessed to be able to make a living doing a job and a game that I was playing from I was eight, nine years <laughs> old. And right. Still be able to do it, and even to this day, doing it with TV, um, I feel very. I've been very blessed.
3: How, what about the differences? If you look back, I mean, you hear a lot of people on this show. We've had, I've talked to a lot of CEOs, and they've talked about the generational differences of of leading and inspiring a different generation. Is it different in football? I mean, it, a coach, say, if you're a 38 year old coach now, or or starting like you did when you were 28, how different is the profession in terms of motivating and inspiring and coaching today's players versus when you were coming up?
4: Well, you know, like, again, it's been 10 years since I've been out, but I've been involved with the game enough, been in enough locker rooms, just even the in the last few years. Um, you know, yeah, it's a different generation. There's no question. I think we're we're in a much more um, transparent world than we've ever been in, just because of social media and all the different platforms are out that are out there. So transparency, certainly, you got to be very careful with what you're doing. I think the sacrifices that you professional athletes have to make are greater now than they were before, because. Uh, Again, you're, you're you're up on a pedestal or you are a role model whether you like it or not. And so right. with that's gonna have to happen. you know, you have to be very careful with what you do and who you surround yourself with. But at the same time, when you're coaching, um, I think that, that players they want three things. They want a sense of direction, um, they want structure and they want accountability in the locker room. Right. And I think if you bring those three things, it doesn't matter what generation of people you're talking about, if you get the right people in there that's the culture you're trying to create, is they want a sense of direction, continuity, growth with systems, keep the systems the same. They want structure. They want to know what people are going to be, how we're going to do it, how we're going to get there. And they want to make sure that along the way, there's a sense of accountability with each and every individual. So I think if you can do those things, what you are is building a culture that's going to be sustainable over a period of time, one that's built on the expectation that it should be one of very high success.
3: I agree with you. Sometimes I think we make it more difficult than we need to uh, because what you just laid out there are are really timeless principles no matter who you're dealing with. I mean, those are basic human kind of wants and needs, right? Yeah, so I I love that answer. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? The future of the game, I hear a lot of people talking about they're scared about the future of the game where it's going in the direction of the NFL. What's your take on it? How do you feel about the future of the NFL? Well,
4: I mean, the game is – I mean, listen, I think, like I said, that because of the transparency, because of all the knowledge we have now, certainly concussions are a big concern that they have with the game of football because it is a contact game. But I think because of that, uh, we, we, we're learning more uh, of how to teach the game safer, particularly at the grassroots level. I think we're doing that. We're taking the head out of the game. Um, you know, Certainly, you're seeing maybe concussions going down. Um, I think we won't know long-term as to what the degree of it is, but I think the game is safer, and I think, again, the positives of the game of football far away the negatives in terms of all the things that it, uh, the game promotes and nothing more than just opportunity that gives some people that may not otherwise have a chance to go to, you know, college and to get, uh, to be able to go to better places than where they are. And, you know, it creates teamwork. It gives identity to young kids, you know, growing up, it's all different body parts can play the game. Um, and uh, you put a helmet on, you're part of a team. Um, I think for young boys and young men, again, like I said, I, I, I don't. I had three daughters growing up. I got some grandsons. I hope they get a chance to play it. I would never force it on anybody, but I would never deny them the opportunity to play the game because I think it, uh, there's something about the game that's uh, very special, particularly for young boys. And, and, uh, and like I said, I there's so many pluses I think that outweigh any of the net negatives and concerns.
3: I agree, and it's one of those, all sports, but I mean football in particular. Uh, because of the time frame, and I guess because of the um, intensity involved, there's so many life lead- leadership lessons and particularly um, the overcoming adversity piece. I think a lot of times we seem, it seems like we try to get through life with um, no adversity, but it's actually that adversity that kind of promotes or produces greatness, right? I mean, it's like you can't become great unless you experience some sort of adversity.
4: Well, I, you know, I've always said, Richard, I said, you know, you're not going to be defined by how many times you get knocked down. You'll be defined by how many times you continue to get back up. Because right. that, to me, is what life is all about. We're all going to get knocked down at some point. But it's the people that can learn from that and continue to get back up. The resiliency part of that. And I don't think you can learn that early enough in life. That sometimes, right. you, you know, you're going to get knocked down just like you do in football. But to you continue to get back up and continue to to, to, to to work and to fight and work ethic and you never quit anything, you start. and Never be intimidated by anything. I think those are qualities that can help you throughout the course of your
3: life. Absolutely, and and in defeat too. How you handle yourself in a defeat, I think, is is a great mark of character and learning experience. Right, and you certainly get that in the on the field of football or any sport. But I mean, how you handle yourself when you're when you've been knocked or defeated or lose, is telling. I right. think. Right.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I used to say, I said, uh, I said, adversity doesn't build character. It just reveals it. Right. And I think that's the one thing that you always find out. It's so easy when you're winning, but when you start to go through the challenges and adversity has sets in, you really find out not just about other people around you, you find out about yourself, you yeah. know? So I think being resilient, uh, being, you know, a sense of purpose and just to continue being able to, 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 to take every challenge and look at every challenge as more of an opportunity than it is uh, an obstacle.
3: Yeah. Hey, before I forget, I wanted to thank you for your support that you've given the uh, the military over the past few years. I know you've made a, a trip or two uh, over to, uh, was it Afghanistan Did you go to? I can't remember where you yeah, went. Yeah,
4: 2000, 2009, I went to Iraq and to Baghdad in 2012, went to Afghanistan. And I got to tell you, both those trips, you know, the USO tours went throughout, through the, and the National Football League. Um, I, you, I just, I can't say enough about what our troops do over there. I think if anybody's been over there, it's life changing. Um, it's, uh, like talk about being selfless. I mean, there's a lot of young men over there and women over there that, uh, they're not exactly sure why they're there, but they're there because they're there to represent and to protect our freedoms that we have here in America. That's so much we take for granted at times. So I, I say to every military person that's done a tour and any military person that's even right here right now, thank you for all you're doing. Um, you know, we, we live, a, we are in the greatest country in the world. We got the greatest freedoms and opportunities that sometimes we take for granted. It's because of our military that we're allowed to do this and feel good about and safe about where we are. So thank you.
3: Well, we appreciate, I know in being a vet, I know, and, um, people in the military I do appreciate that. And anybody that makes that trip and sees it over there, that, that means a lot. And uh, yeah, when you go on those trips, I can imagine, uh, it puts things in perspective. Anytime you travel outside of these states, I think that was probably the biggest thing I did when I traveled in the Marine Corps going over the world. I I mean, I always appreciated this country, but when I got away from it, exactly. I really realized how good we have. Yeah.
4: You know? yeah. Yeah. You get away and you get out there and you're seeing, you know, we're in Iraq and there's Iraq, at, you know, National Army is on the same base with
2: the,
4: right. US, the USA Army. And, you know, you just, wow, you, you can never let your guard down, you just the sense of just always uh, just on edge. Everyone's on edge all the time. <laughs> right, right? So you just right. don't realize the life they're living and the sense of purpose. And they got to be, they got to always be, you know, right there and understand exactly whatever situation they're in. They can never let down their guard literally. And yeah. so, um, wow, you come back here and you, you just, it just makes you appreciate all the things that you guys did and that you have done over there and, You know, uh, and so that I understand now when you come back, we we, we, I don't think we appreciate you guys enough. And Mm -hmm. I just I have always encouraged people that there's no there's no one that's going to be more innovative than a military person. They're not going to be more accountable than a military person, and there's not a a person that's going to be more team oriented. Is someone who's been in the military abroad. So, well, yeah. I tell you what, if you had a chance to put them on your company, I'd do it in a heartbeat.
3: Yeah. Well, that's a great endorsement. I appreciate you saying that. You know, any modicum of success I've had up to this point, I can attribute to the time in the Marine Corps for sure. And uh, that's it, awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like I look at the that service kind of pretty much like you look at football, I'm sure. You know, it's so many life lessons it, it has taught you. It's made you the man who you are. For no sure, doubt. yeah, no doubt. When you look at the roster, if you look at the field of of kind of these up and coming coaches, or even the experienced ones are out there. Who 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 do you really like and admire? I mean, who do you, who do you think really gets it?
4: Well, I mean, I I, I I I don't like putting names on things because I feel like I'm going to leave somebody out. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, I get it. So yeah. you know, I mean, I, I I I just I like I like some of the young coaches that are getting opportunities right now. And everyone talks about, well, there's no candidates out there. and, you know what? There's there, there's so many good young people. There's so many people that you know they're given the right opportunity. The only thing I have tried to do is encourage owners to give a coach three years. You know, if yeah. you give a coach three years, you see how they're trending after three years. You know, then if you need to make a change, I get it. But you see these guys that are getting giving these guys, hiring them, and a year later they're firing them. What you're doing is admitting that it, you it wasn't. It's not because of him. It's you. You mm-hmm. didn't hire the right guy. Mm -hmm. You know, so don't judge him on one year. Don't judge him on two years. Give a guy three years. If it's not getting trended in three years, I get it. Now, you know, it's easy for me to say. I know that sometimes we don't get, we don't see everything that's going on behind closed doors. And sometimes there are circumstances that may not allow that to happen. I get that. Totally understand that. But I think from a general standpoint, you give anybody three years to run your organization, and you see how they're trending in those three years. Then to me, then make a change if needed. And uh, but hopefully, what you'll do is you'll see it trending in the right direction.
3: Yeah, what? Yeah, I agree with that. That's 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 great. Sometimes it seems like they don't give them enough time. I mean, obviously, you went in. I think uh, I don't know the ninety one season, ninety one ninety two. They were what were they six and or seven and nine or something. And then you came in and and then you went to eleven and five. I mean, what a great improvement on your first season, right? But why do you think that was what do you th- i mean i know there's so many so many aspects to it but why do you think the big yeah. turnaround
4: oh it, it, it's hard to say you know i mean again you know there's it's it it, it it's very difficult to, i mean to sit there and say okay this is what this yeah. is what happened i think if we all knew that yeah we would you know, we, we would box it up and sell about it. it right maybe, yeah. <laughs> you know but there's no real manuscript i think every situation is uniquely different um and uh you know you walk into a building and there's just there's certain good qualities about it and there's certain qualities that uh that you have to change and that's why their change maybe was made you know i mean i know chuck knoll was a he's a hall of fame coach great coach but they'd only been to playoffs one time in seven years prior to, that, to me getting there and yeah, sometimes we changed the whole staff. We changed everything that was being done there and it was, it was, it worked out, you know, but that didn't diminish what I was able to do because there was a lot of qualities that Chuck Nolan installed in that football team and that organization that I was blessed to have, able to have inherited. And then at the same time, you know, taking it to the next level of, of trying to make sure that uh, again, it, it, it's a team that, that you're building around what you would like to be at what it looks like and the vision you have for it and the culture you're trying to create. So it takes a lot. It's uh the Rooneys are a tremendous organization and a family that's uh, very supportive. And, you know, that's why they've only had three coaches, I think in like the last 40 right. years. So it's uh, it's a pretty special place.
3: I'm thinking about, you know, to be in your early thirties and be a, a, a head football coach. I just, I mean, I'm 48 now and I think, Oh my gosh, it, I don't know. I just, it would seem so, I mean, I'm a confident guy. I like to take on challenges, but I'm like, Oh my God, I'd feel like I was getting going to be found out, you know, sooner or later they're going to find out that they got the wrong guy or something, you know, I mean, how scared was it? I mean, how, how, I mean, how foreign was it, you know?
4: Well, you know what? I, I think having the fear of failure is not a bad thing. I think all yeah. we'll had that. I think if yeah. you, you talked to any NFL coach. I think the the fear of failing becomes the motivational, uh, uh, part of, of of why you are successful right and i think if you talk to any ceo i think that's probably true too i think we all have this fear of failure and i think that also the ability to be able to use that as the fuel and the, and, and the motivation of, of why you put the time the effort the preparation the you know the attention to detail and, and and you apply everything you do because you know you don't want to fail and i think when you have that Quality where some people can become complacent. Some people are okay. They just get there. You know, whatever happens is going to happen. And I think when you get there, to, to be driven enough to do whatever you need to do um, to continue to be successful is, uh, is a great motivating force. And I think that we all had that. I know I had that in my 15 years. I just didn't want to fail. And I, I missed it. And, yeah. and I feared failure.
3: Yeah, and it's like that fear can be a great barometer. You know, it can it can tell you what, you what you should be doing. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's getting comfortable with it. You know, I think realizing that the fear and uncertainty never really goes away. It never goes away. And no. so if that's the price of admission to what we need to do to achieve something of significance, then let's just get on with it and get used to it. Yeah, and, and tackle it's a,
4: it, it becomes a way of measuring the level of competition you have within yourself. How right. competitive are you? Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you're if you're okay with losing, if, and then all of a sudden, to me, that's the degree of complacency. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't accept it, but usually, this uh, you deal with it, you learn to deal with it, and uh, but uh, that also becomes the, the driving force of why you want to change something.
3: Yeah. So, what's next as we kind of wrap up here? What what's what's exciting for you? What's what's in the future for you?
4: Well, I'm with CBS. I'm looking forward to, 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 continue my job there with them. Uh, we, we have Thursday night football next year for the first half of the season. So I do that on Thursday nights in the studio, uh, show, the pregame show with CBS prior to, to uh, uh, on CBS on Sundays. And, you know what? I, I, I really love working with CBS. It's, uh, it, it's a great family. Um, again, like I said, it's, uh, it, you know, it gives me my football, uh, you know, it fixes my niche for football. My, uh, you know, my itch that I get for that. So no, I, really. get, I get filled with that, and in the off season, I, I do a lot of traveling. I do some speaking, and uh, I'm in a good place. I got three grandkids, and uh, I'm enjoying life right now.
3: Well, Coach, I'm a big fan of you. Have been for a long time. Even though uh, uh, Kansas City is my team, it's a, it's a rival. I mean, I've always appreciated the Steelers. I've always appreciated your leadership style. Love how you are as a coach, as a human being, as a man, as a leader. And uh, it's just been an honor to have you on the show.
4: Thank you, Richard. And, again, I know that you're a vet, and I know that this goes out to a lot of the, uh, the people that are serving our country. And I can't say it again. I'll say it uh, just thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for every every military person for what they're doing and what they've done. Um, we all owe you so much and uh, because we would not have the freedoms we have today is for people like you and, and our military today that are over there uh, fighting for our freedoms uh, that we sometimes take for granted here. So I would to say, speaking on behalf of everybody, thank you for everything that you've done and uh, continue to do.
3: Awesome stuff, Coach. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right.
4: Coaches,
1: that was interesting. So let me share three ideas from this interview just to think about. So here's the first one. Athletes want three things. Structure with continuity of a system, accountability, and a sense of vision and direction. So in your program, what do you need more of? Is it more structure? Maybe it's more accountability, or maybe more of a sense of direction and vision, either at the team level or individually. Maybe some of your athletes need to have a better vision of how being on the team serves their goals. Here's a second takeaway. Coaches need a minimum of three years to get results in a program. Boy, I know you each know that. And the scoreboard is the last place the results show up. The first place is the environment and the culture you create. And here's the third takeaway. People are defined by how many times they get back up after they've been knocked down. It's more than their achievements. Resiliency is the key quality to have. And finish what you start. Having a sense of purpose allows you to get back up and overcome challenges. So here's the action step from Bill Cower. At the University of Texas, our teams win. But with that comes complacency, right? Bill Cower gave us a great reminder on the power of humility. Humility is the best way to overcome complacency. So how can you make your team more humble? The value is it'll make them more consistent. So now let's hear from Carly Fiorini. Again, she was the CEO of Hewlett Packard. Just an amazing woman. Listen for her wisdom on collaboration. Pay particular attention to why collaboration is important. And the only way you can be great at collaboration is if you totally embrace it as something that's needed. Not something that you just give lip service to. Also listen for the key to making collaboration effective. She talks about being specific. Specific. Who has to do what to solve the problem? So let's listen to the brilliance of Carly Fiorini.
0: If you never try something new, if you never take a risk, you're also never going to actually achieve your full potential
2: helping business leaders grow themselves their team and their profits this is entree leadership now here's your host ken coleman Coming to you from the Music City, this is the broadcast of leaders by leaders for leaders. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Here's what we've got coming up for you. Carly Fiorina, former chairman and CEO of Hewlett-Packard and now a best-selling author. Also, you might remember, she kind of put herself out there for running for president, did not get the nomination, but nonetheless, very, very impressive lady. Here is my conversation with the one, the only Carly Fiorina so many young leaders who listen into this program. And I'm just going to kind of start out in a different place than I normally would with kind of an open-ended big question and let you just teach. But I would love for you to just think about young leaders that are listening in here and they're early on in their career, some of them maybe even in their first leadership position. And they certainly, as most leaders, they want to do a great job leading where they are. And they also have an eye on the next, What would you say to that young leader? How would you encourage them and equip them in this season?
0: Well, the first thing that I would say is if you are young and starting out and you already think of yourself as a leader, congratulations, because that wasn't my story. Mm. I thought I might get fired at the end of every day. I felt totally unqualified for the jobs that I had. And I had this idea about what leadership is and the idea that I had was a leader is someone with an office, with a title, with position and power, and maybe the biggest parking space. And so that wasn't me, I didn't think. What I learned, however, is that there were problems all around me, lots of problems that everybody talked about, and frequently nobody did much about them. And so I started solving problems. So what I would say to young leaders is, Think not about the position you want someday. Think about the impact you can have today. And what I would also say is don't worry about the next job. Do the job you have mm-hmm. to the very best of your ability. Solve the problems in front of you. Collaborate with the people all around you. Because honestly, I have seen a lot of careers get shortchanged because people are so focused on the next job on the big title that they want, that they fail to see and take advantage of the opportunity that's right in front of them today.
2: Mm. Carly, in that answer, you mentioned a word that I think is an art form. I don't see it a lot done very well with leaders because it really does take a special discipline. You were really good at it. You're passionate talking about it. So let's bring it up. Collaboration. What is the secret to doing collaboration well?
0: Well, I think first you have to realize why it's necessary. I mean, you don't collaborate just because it's a nice thing to do. You don't collaborate just because it's fun to do. In fact, frequently it's a pain in the neck to do. I mean, there's so many times when each of us would say to ourselves in our heads, oh, it'd just be so much easier if I could just do this myself. The reason to collaborate is because the impact will be greater, will be longer lasting, will be bigger. So if you have a tiny problem that doesn't impact a lot of people and that the answer is obvious, you may not need to collaborate. You maybe can just do it all by yourself. Gee, I have five minutes. I need something copied. I'm just going to do it myself. On the other hand, if you're tackling a problem or trying to take advantage of an opportunity that is complex as most problems and opportunities are these days, or it impacts a lot of people, or maybe because it is complex and because it impacts a lot of people, you don't know everything you need to know about solving it. Then you need to collaborate. And so I say all that to say, you won't collaborate effectively unless you actually think you need to. And you will only think you need to collaborate if you're humble enough to understand that you don't know it all, and you can't possibly know it all because the world is complicated and so are problems and things happen quickly. And you won't collaborate unless you understand as well that the answers you're going to get will be better, richer, more impactful. If other people are collaborating with you, you're gonna come up with better answers, although it may take longer, and it may feel harder.
2: Okay, let's look at this from a couple different contexts. So let's take collaboration. So the leader themselves, they're in a room, they need to be collaborating, they are collaborating, they put themselves in the situation. What's the right posture to really ensure that the humility is obvious, that there's a hunger to actually do this, what would you recommend as far as reading the room and then being a part of this collaboration process when maybe you don't know that person very well, maybe there needs to be some trust established? Just curious what you would tell us that would help us be more effective at stepping into this.
0: Well, I think first you need to establish why you're all there and agree why you're all there. It seems like such an obvious thing. But how many meetings have you been in where people sit down and just start, but what they haven't done is taken the time to agree on what's our purpose? What's the problem we're trying to solve? Do we all agree on the problem we're trying to solve? Do we all agree it's a problem? Do we all know why we're here? Taking the time to get grounded in who's there, why they're there, What you're trying to get done together is a way of establishing connection, but also laying the foundation for what you're going to be working on together. The second thing I would say is, people need to connect at a human level before they can collaborate effectively. So maybe that means everyone going around the room and saying something about themselves, or maybe it means everyone talking about why this problem is important to them, or why they want to be in the room, or what they think perhaps they bring To the table that they can offer, that they can contribute, and then in a spirit of humility saying, and these are some things that maybe I don't understand about the problem, or things I'm perhaps not as good at as some of the rest of you are. In other words, one of the things that leaders have to do to collaborate effectively is put everyone on the same level for a period of time. In the end, there may come a time When a person has to make a call, has to make a decision. But for that period of collaboration, of problem solving, of creatively thinking through possibilities and solutions, everyone needs to be a peer at that table. And everyone has to feel it is both their opportunity and their obligation to bring all that they have to the table as peers.
2: Boy, that's really good. Okay, I love that. So now the second context, you certainly understand having led HP and understanding, you know, how do you get all these different divisions? How do we create a culture (laughs) of collaboration? So how does the leader then model this, what you just described in their life? That's how they do it. But then how do they begin to institutionalize, I guess, for a lack of a better word, and create a culture of true collaboration so that everybody's looking for these opportunities to do what you just described?
0: That is the million-dollar question. It's not easy, and it takes time. (laughs) And let me just say, it's frequently the most difficult in very successful organizations. Because successful organizations are successful for a reason. People have a way of doing things. And if you have a big successful organization, complicated successful organization, what happens? People get into their turf, right? Everybody has their fiefdoms. Everyone gets into this mode of, well, this is my team and I'm going to talk to my team, but there's nothing I can learn from this other team. And so there are many levels of collaboration. There is collaboration with one's own team, important, but frequently there are so many problems that can only be solved if people are prepared to work with other teams across organizational boundaries. So to the point of your question, the first thing I would say is it has to be role modeled. So I'll tell you a very specific story. When I arrived at HP, we had 87 business units, wow. all with their own president. We had five people with the title CEO. I was one of them, but there were four others who reported to me, but who were also called CEOs. Now imagine for a moment the turf the Mm. fiefdoms, the territory. And so people had learned, you know, I collaborate in my kingdom, but I don't get outside my kingdom. So one of the first things we had to do was start to have meetings where people had to get outside of their own team. The first thing we did was examine every asset the company had as a collaborative team as peers. We spent days doing it. So that in other words, people had the same context with which to begin collaborating. Everyone spent time learning about everything going on in the business. And then we had a common frame of reference. Role modeling collaboration means that I had to sit, not as their boss, but at times as their peer, and learn with them, and struggle with them, and problem solve with them. And of course, over time, a culture gets built, not because of the talk, but because of the walk. That is, cultures get built on behavior. And one of the really important behaviors that people look for when they're trying to understand a culture is who gets promoted, who gets rewarded. So if you're promoting people who don't collaborate, the message is, I don't need to collaborate. If the boss is collaborating, that sends a message. Maybe I need to role model that behavior. And then if you see really great collaborators who reach across organizational boundaries, who sit with others as their colleague and their peer and discuss all kinds of solutions to a problem they all share. If those are the kinds of people that get promoted, you've taken a big step forward in building a culture of collaboration.
2: Okay, that leads me, I've got to ask you this because you have such a unique experience. Certainly when you come into an organization like that with all those many kingdoms, as you said.
0: (laughs) I used to call it the land of a thousand tribes. (laughs) I'll bet.
2: I mean, it's almost mind-numbing. I don't know that I can fully process what that must have been like for you to come in and go, okay, let's see the lay of the land. That's why I want to go down this path here. There's so much we can ask you. And if you're a leader right now and you want to make some change in your organization, where Carly's going to take us is still applying to you. She just came in as as obviously a fresh and a new leader here. But I'm curious about how we can take away from the changes you led in behaviors and processes. I'll just try to keep it that simple. So new processes and then behaviors that may be or may not be connected to those processes. And you've got a successful company, a name brand, big time American brand, and you come in, you got all these leaders. What did you learn about changing? That's a big boat to turn around. What did you learn from the process of changing cultures, behaviors, and processes that we can learn from you?
0: You have to have a complete view of what's in front of you. And for me, to have a complete view, I needed to have what I called and what I built a leadership framework. And very simply... I call it a framework because it literally is a square, like a frame, and at the top of that frame are goals. What are our goals? Or you could put it another way. What are the problems we're trying to solve? But you need to find agreement on those goals and on those problems. That's a key step. And so often organizations just skip right over it and assume, oh, everybody knows the problems. Everybody agrees what the problems are. We all know what the goals are. Well, frequently people don't. How often have you seen, for example, in political discourse, everyone's arguing and actually nobody even agrees on the problem. Mm -hmm. That happens in all kinds of settings. So goals, problems, what are we trying to accomplish? Get clear on that. Get aligned on that. Mm. Second, who has to do what? We talk about processes, structures, but who has to do what? To contribute to this problem or to achieve this goal. And if you have a big goal or a big problem or a complicated problem or a goal that's been elusive for a long time, it's a big hint that you're not going to get it done by just doing things the way you've always done them. If you were going to accomplish something by just continuing to do things the way you've always done them, you would have accomplished it. You would have solved the problem, but you haven't. So clearly you have to do something different, which means people have to be willing to take on different roles and operate differently. The more explicit you can be about that, the better. So for example, in the HP example, guys, we can't serve customers who want a system that works by being 87 different business units. It doesn't work. And our customers told us that. Third, the bottom of the framework, how are you going to measure results? What results are you looking for? Because I truly believe what gets measured is what gets done. And that's true in all settings. My goodness, in our lives today, we measure everything. We measure our calories. We measure our steps. We measure our heartbeat at rest, blah, blah, blah. But you have to be able to measure The results you're trying to achieve. And then finally, what is the behavior we want? Be explicit about it, not mysterious about it. So we needed more collaboration. Let's be explicit about that. Let's train people on how to collaborate effectively. We need more innovation and more risk-taking. Let's be explicit about that. The more explicit you can be about all these things, the more likely you are to achieve them. But now let me just say to all of your viewers and listeners, you don't have to be a CEO to take that point of view. When I landed in AT&T many years ago as an entry-level employee... My previous job in business had been as a secretary. I felt completely unqualified. And here was an organization, incredibly successful, and they had done things a certain way for a long time. And here comes me. And what I kept hearing about were problems that weren't getting solved. And so I would sit down with people and say, do we actually think this is a problem? Is it worth the energy to try and solve it? And people would say yes, but somehow they didn't think it was their job to solve it. Well, let's talk about how to solve it. Sometimes solving a problem starts with asking a question. What's the problem? What do you think we should do about it? And then acting on it.
2: It's amazing. When you say it like that, it's kind of like, oh, man, you know, this ought to be an indictment on leadership. But I think you make a very good point here. Problems are just, you know, leaders, they come up with all kinds of reasons why they don't want to solve or deal with the problem. So the very thing that we try to avoid sometimes is the key to a thriving future. What's the psychology of a leader? Because I think there are leaders listening right now, Carly. What are the fears or the doubts that leaders are facing that create this situation where we want to put it off till tomorrow? And then the next day, we kick the can down the road to use a political
0: phrase. So first, I would say people need to understand the difference between leaders and managers. And there are a lot of people who would call themselves leaders, but what they are is managers. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with being a manager per se, but a manager does the best they can with whatever the existing conditions are. In other words, a manager does the best they can, sometimes extremely well, within the status quo. They accept the way things are. Leaders change the order of things for the better. The reason problems fester is not because people don't know what they are. Generally speaking, everyone knows what the problems are. And in fact, they talk about the problems a lot. They gossip about the problems. The reason problems hang around is because in order to solve them, you have to change something. And people actually don't like change. Mm -hmm. The status quo is powerful. People are invested in it. Hey, we've done it this way for a long time and it works. Or, hey, I like being a business unit president. It doesn't matter so much to me that we're not serving customers well. I like my title. I like my office. I'm not being condemning of people. This is human nature. The status quo is powerful. And so when you set out to change it as a leader, wherever you are, whatever your title is, when you set out to change that status quo, guess what? People are going to push back. They're going to criticize you. They're going to say, for example, something that's been said to me and perhaps many of your listeners all my life. People are going to say, who do you think you are? Why do you think you can tackle this? I mean, we've been doing it this way. It's working all right. Okay, it's not perfect, but it's working all right. We've been pretty successful. People don't like to be criticized. That's human nature. And particularly, I would say, in this culture where criticism is so omnipresent, it's everywhere, it's all around us, always the critics. Critics are always louder than fans. Isn't that always true? Mm -hmm. And people don't like that. And so what are people afraid of? They're afraid of being criticized. They're afraid of being wrong. They're afraid of making a mistake. They're afraid that maybe if they take a risk, they're going to blow it. And so sometimes it's just easier and it feels safer to just leave it alone and do the best you can with the way things are. That's why problems fester. Mm. And that is what leaders are made for. Leaders solve the problems in front of them. And change the order of things for the better. Mm -hmm. Leaders do not accept the status quo. They challenge it for a purpose.
2: Would you say that a big part of your success, I mean, so many things you did well, but you got in the business of solving problems. I know your story. You just kind of, each level that you were given an opportunity, you were kind of taking that approach. Not kind of, you took that approach that you just laid out for us. Would you say that a big part of your success was not only taking a real direct approach towards problems, but also empowering your team, the leaders under you, to actually take that same approach and go solve problems? Just
0: go solve problems. Absolutely. The only reason I moved forward in corporate America, honestly, is because I solved problems. Mm -hmm. I didn't look like most of the people who were rising in the ranks at that company. People didn't expect that of me. I didn't expect that of myself. But what I figured out is every time I solved a problem, it felt great. Mm -hmm. And every time I worked with others to solve problems, and by the way, that's the only way you actually solve problems. You work with others, whether it's Jim or your colleagues, they don't have to be your subordinates. It felt great. And so I came to learn about myself, as most people do, once they get into problem-solving mode, it's fun. I ran to challenges. I ran to problems. I would run to the jobs where people said, Oh, don't take that job. Whoa, it's too hard. Wow. There are too many problems. Everybody told me not to take the HP job. Mm. Don't, it's too hard. But when you do hard things and you accomplish something important, wow, it feels great. And here's the thing I've also learned about myself and I've learned about others. There is a look. That people get when they accomplish more than they thought they could. Mm -hmm. It was the look in Jim's eyes when he saved $300 million. It's the look we see in our kids' eyes when they do something they didn't think they could. It's the same everywhere. And no matter who you are, you get that look. It's this look of, wow, I did something that I think matters. And I did something I didn't think I could. And I did it with a group of people to whom I am connected And with whom I have collaborated, that look for me is fuel. And so I want to see that look Mm -hmm. in as many people as possible.
2: What was it like for you in any level of your leadership where you took this approach personally, you taught it, you empowered it? And then what is it like for the leader when you get reports and the entire meeting or the entire report is a problem that you weren't even aware of? and somebody went and fixed it, and they're just reporting to you, problem existed or it arose, we went after it, we fixed it, here's the update. How rewarding is that for you when you would see that and see that whole thing come to fruition?
0: It's incredible. It's awesome because what you're seeing is the birth of a leader. What you're seeing when people do that is somebody who maybe was a manager maybe even had a lot of ambition for position or title, but they weren't leading. And now they're leading. And I think it's true of all the people I've ever interacted with in all walks of life and all over the world. When people face a challenge head on, when they get themselves through their fears and we're all afraid, When people face a challenge head-on, when they find others with whom they can connect and collaborate who also face that challenge, and then they actually make progress, that's a great feeling. And people want it over and over and over. Once people start to lead, they generally keep going.
1: Coaches, I hope you got a lot out of that. Hey, You're collaborating all the time with your assistant coaches, with your athletes. How do you get better at this? Carly points out something really important. key to collaboration is to be specific. Who has to do what to solve the problem? Then you have to measure the results. You can't manage what you don't measure. Measuring the behaviors you want. Being explicit and detailed on everything is the key to being successful in collaboration. So here's the takeaway. Step back and just think about how you can be better at collaboration. Maybe it's embrace it more in your heart. Or maybe it's collaborating more with your athletes. When they see that you're taking their suggestions, boy, it sure enhances them following what you say. So until next time, hook them.